Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today we welcome the brilliant memoirist, Nicole Chung, to the show. Nicole is the author of A Living Remedy, which is one of my favorite reads so far this year. It's a sharp, personal, and political memoir tackling family, home, death and grief, inadequate healthcare and wealth disparities, among other themes. The New York Times called A Living Remedy a luminous addition to the literature of loss. It follows Nicole's beloved and best-selling memoir, All You Can Ever Know, which was a Stax Book Club pick in 2019. Nicole is also a contributing writer at The Atlantic, a Time contributor, and a Slate columnist. And she is also an avid reader with fantastic taste. So get your pens ready for the second half of this episode when she goes through some of her faves. Though, everything we talk about in today's episode and every episode of The Stacks can be found in the link in the show notes. Nicole will return on May 31st, for the discussion of our book club selection, This Boy We Made, a memoir of motherhood, genetics, and facing the unknown by Taylor Harris. If you love the stacks and you want more of it, like our incredible community on Discord, our bonus episodes, our monthly meetups to discuss our book club picks, and more, you must join the stacks on Patreon. It's just $5 a month and you get all of that. Plus, you get to know you're part of making this Black woman-run independent book podcast a reality every single week. Head to patreon.com slash the stacks and join now. A special shout out to our newest members, Nia Smith, Colleen Stearns, and Helena Thompson. Thank you all so much for joining the Stacks Pack, and thank you to the entire Stacks Pack, because I love you. All right, now it's time for my conversation with Nicole Chung. All right, everybody, I am thrilled to welcome back a friend of the podcast, an author that many of you already know because we did her first book, for book club. It's Nicole Chung, and we're here to talk about her new book, A Living Remedy. Nicole, welcome back. Thank you so much, Tracy. I'm excited to be here. Um, okay. Nicole, book two. I kind of want to just start with you explaining to folks a little bit what this book is about. Yeah. I mean, this is tricky, actually trickier than it sounds because <laughs> I never did work out a great elevator pitch. Okay. Oops. <laughs> Um, no, the, a living remedy. Um, so the book began originally as a story of grief for my father, 
who died at 67. His death was sped in part by precarity and lack of access to health care. And that was a story that I, I felt really compelled to write. And then, you know, I had started working on it, on this book, and my mother was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And so I never expected that it would become a book about losing both my parents within two years of each other, uh, my adoptive parents, that is. But that that is very much what it became. And, you know, it has different layers. I like to think there are different ways into the book, but it is essentially a story of grief and class and American inequality. Um, I love the book so much. You know that. And I think listeners, if, if you ha- if you don't follow me on Instagram, you probably you might not know that. But I loved this book so much. I think I think in my notes, it says I started crying on page 29, which is very early for me to be emotional in a book. I mean, crying at all for me is sort of a reach. But I was like, deeply touched by this book. I have lost a parent. And you hit on so many things that I felt like were right on about that grief. And then, you know, there's so many parts of your story that are really different from my story. And and I I mean, I just love the way you write. There's so many things about this book to love, both the writing and the storytelling and also like the things that you had to say. And just, ugh, it's just people listening. This is a good one. I This is one of the really, really good books I've read this year. Um, Thank you. That means so much to me, truly. Well, I'm happy to hear that. And we're going to talk about sort of how this book experience compares for you as to your first book, but we'll save that for later. And I realized I sort of jumped the gun. Normally, I ask people to tell us about themselves. And I was just like, oh. let's talk about the book. But you should tell us a little <laughs> bit about you aside from the book. Of course. Uh, So I live in the D.C. area now, but I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, uh, born and raised. I was born and adopted in Seattle, and I spent most of the first 18 years of my life in a little town in Southern Oregon. Um, And I was the only Korean I knew there uh, because I'm an adoptee. So like that includes my family, the only one I knew until I went to college. Um, I've been on the East Coast for over 20 years now. I have two kids uh, and a beautiful golden retriever. <laughs> and um, in my past lives, I've you know I've been an editor, um, and I'm currently a contributing writer to many publications. Yeah, so that that's kind of me. This is my second book, actually, and and no one is more surprised than I that I've written not one but two memoirs. I never would have anticipated it, but there you go. What did you think you would write? I don't know, like like many people, I think, who loved writing as a kid, I wrote like mostly fiction. I wrote a lot of poetry that was not very good, but um, I still love to read poetry. But I think I think when you're growing up as a kid and you're starting to stretch your wings and, and see which creative pursuits you love, nobody's really like, I'm going to grow up and write my memoir. I mean, I don't think that's a thing we say. Um, and I, I don't know, I came to the forum by surprise and I'm not that late, but a little bit late. I was in my like mid to late 20s. Um, but I do. I really, really love the genre. I don't know if I'll write any more memoirs. But um, yeah, I feel very lucky to have gotten to write these two. I think it's interesting you say that about kids because as you say that, I'm realizing there aren't really memoirs for kids, right? Like that's not something that you read as a kid. There might be like nonfiction biographies about people, but like a memoir, I'm trying to think. There's- it's, it's tough. There's definitely a lot of literature for younger people where authors are, they're transparent about borrowing heavily from their own lives. They might say this is semi-autobiographical mm-hmm. and, you know, or, or sometimes even, so my co-editor for a young adult anthology of stories by adoptees that I have coming out this fall, Shannon Gibney, she just wrote a book that is very much like speculative fiction slash memoir. Like it's mm-hmm. right on the line and it is in, intended, um, you know, partly for like it's in the, it's for the YA audience. Um, but you're right. It's it's kind of rare. And, and I'm not sure why that is. 
Um, but I do think we see a lot of like, especially, um, you know, own voices type stories where people are at least borrowing from their experiences and, and, and trying to um, represent people like them in their communities. Do you think you will write fiction? I would love to. Um, <laughs> you know, I uh, I tried it out a little bit. Well, I should say, like, when I was younger, it was like what I wrote right. uh, growing up. And even through college, um, you know, when I took writing classes, I was taking primarily fiction classes. Um, and then, I don't know, I've, I've outlined a novel, uh, which, you know, I'm not ready to talk about yet, but I'm very interested to see if I can write it. And I, I would love to write um, also literature for young people. So, you know, we'll see. But yeah, I, I'm trying not to put a lot of pressure on myself in terms of what's next. This is a really, um, it was a difficult book to write and it has been a privilege, but also kind of taxing as you can imagine to promote. And I really want to get through like events and tour and at least pub month <laughs> yeah. before, before I start thinking a lot about the next will be. So, yeah, I mean, nope, there's no pressure from us. That's just, we're just rooting for you. That's what Thank I'll say. You. Thank you. <laughs> I don't care whatever you write next and when you write it, I'll read it. I promise. Um, See, that makes you the perfect reader. <laughs> yeah, I'm just waiting. I'm just eager. Every time I ask someone about like the next thing, I'm like, you You can also say, fuck you, leave me alone because I'll read it whenever it comes. I don't care. I just am curious and nosy. Um, but I wanted to, okay, so let's talk about A Living Remedy. What has it been like talking repeatedly over and over about grief, about death? And in the case of your father and your mother, you know, it feels like almost wrongful in a way. Like your dad didn't have to get sick and be so sick so quickly. Like if the American healthcare system, you know, like there is some sort of like frustration maybe at the very least. So I'd love to know what it's like for you to talk about that and write about that and sit with that for so long. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate that question. Um, to, I guess to start with the writing, you know, pre pre promo when you're just kind of with your thoughts and your words. Right. Um, I wrote a lot of this book during the pandemic. I should say, like, rewrote it during the pandemic. I took probably almost a year off from writing, actually, uh, when my mother got her terminal cancer diagnosis. Um, I just put the book down. I knew it was going to change. That was like if I could write it at all, because there were several mm. points when I was like, this is too much. And how am I supposed to write about losing both of them? How am I supposed to lose both of them? Right. And then at some point, like make art about that. It just it did. It felt kind of wrong and it felt impossible. And I wasn't in a place where I was ready to even really think too hard about it. So um, from the time she was sick until about six months after she passed away and my mother died in the spring of 2020. Um, she started hospice care actually right as like the first coronavirus cases were being reported as I write about in the book. I, I really just didn't, I wasn't ready to go back to this and I did not know, crucially, I did not know what it was going to become. Mm -hmm. Um, I will say like when I did find I was able to get back to it, it's not that it felt, um, of course it can't feel good like reliving those experiences. Right. But there was so much, there's so much active memory work you do with a memoir. And in a way, it was like another way of honestly spending time with mm. both of them. And I knew I was creating something if I actually managed to create it. It was going to be a story in which my parents lived. And like, I mean, lived on the page and would hopefully feel 
like real to people and real to me. That's not to say you can ever fully perfectly capture like the quirks and nuances of who a person is in a portrayal of the book. But like I was trying to get as much as I could in like the short space. And it, it was meaningful, like to get to spend that time with those memories and to try to do do their story, our story justice. And even to grapple with like the things that we were talking about with, I, you know, my father had diabetes, he had kidney disease. I don't believe death at 67 was an, like this, this inevitability for him. You know, my mother didn't believe that either. Um, and so there was this part of my grief that did mean confronting that injustice and, and grappling with the fact that it is such a common American death that so many families here really do go through the same or very similar things because, of our broken systems because of our broken safety nets. So it was actually like important to me to be able to face that head on in this story. It wasn't something I saw necessarily explored in a lot of grief stories. Um, But for me and for my mother, after we lost my dad, it was such like, it was just so interwoven with Mm -hmm. that mourning experience was, was facing our own regret and then trying to forgive ourselves and also realize the truth of what he had really been up against. I want to, you said that you started writing this before the pandemic Mm -hmm. originally, and then you got the diagnosis for your mom. And I'm wondering how writing about grief maybe changed in you as you were also part of this global grief related to COVID-19. Yeah, that's such a good question. I mean, I, I like to say this book was a process, Mm -hmm. right? Um, As every book is, but I mean like a rewriting process. And then it's also like about a process because that's what grief is. And I, I mean, I remember after my dad died, there's this sense of betrayal and like shock you feel when you realize for you, the world has completely shifted. Mm -hmm. And it seems like for everyone else, it just keeps going on. With my mother who died in the spring of 2020, like there was no snapping back to normal life. Nobody I knew was leading a normal existence. And I won't say that made me feel good. Of course, like I would have preferred that not be happening Mm -hmm. because not just because it prevented me from, you know, being with her in the way I wanted to be toward the end, but just a difficult thing for everyone to go through. But I, I do remember feeling like, oh, nobody has to dig very deep. Nobody has to reach very far. Everybody knows how to access grief right now. Everybody is grieving something or someone. Everyone has lost something. It may not be a loved one, but maybe it was an experience, a moment, uh, like a wedding, a graduation ceremony, like time with loved ones. We were all missing something. And it felt like it felt like in that way, what I was writing about was even more universal than than grief would normally be. It was just like an interesting time to be um to be thinking about that and like how it changes you and how it shifts your priorities and your values. And, and then to be trying to um, like translate that experience in a way that could perhaps matter to other people and make them think of their own losses, you know, their own loved ones. Yeah. And then, you know, we fast forward to the book coming out now in April of 2023 and you still are obviously, I mean, I I would assume grieving your parents Mm -hmm. and you're also now publicly talking about this thing, which gets kind of back to the previous question. Yeah. And I think and I think on top of that, a lot of people or some people at least have moved on from COVID and that grief and that feeling. And so I'm wondering, again, what it's been like for you to talk about that 
kind of knowing the backstory of like you starting this in 2018 mm-hmm. after your dad passed away and then moving into this collective grief and then your mom passes away in 2020 and now we're kind of five years later and now you have to talk about it. Yeah. So it's interesting. Like I've just, my pub day was this month. So I've just started getting out there and talking about it. There's often, not always, but often a moment during an event when I, when I'm asked some, some version of this question. And I always say like, I'm very conscious. I was very conscious of not wanting to write like a pandemic book, say, or even a book that was like, quote unquote, just a grief story. But at the same time, like, I do think I think that that's those themes, those those events are really resonant in people's lives. Like all of us have been changed mm-hmm. by what we've been through in the past few years, especially. There is, as you say, this um, this tendency to want to look look past it or look forward, and I think it's honestly just so much pain that and a lot, there's a lot of unacknowledged, unseen like pain and grief. It's a very hard thing to face, like. I understand why people sometimes shy away from that, but I don't think we can or we should look away from that pain and that grief that so many people experienced that we all experienced in some way. Um, You know, a point that keeps being raised on my tours, like we, there hasn't really been like a a moment of like collective mourning in the pandemic. Um, I think there was one brief sort of ceremony uh, shortly after President Biden was elected, right? Yep. And that's kind of it. But then again, I'm like, well, how do you how do you memorialize something that is ongoing? I mean, that's right. another question altogether. Um, but I very much hope that the book would um, would would be able to keep people company if this was also something that was on their mind. And I think I think it is on a lot of people's minds. There are so many people I know who live streamed funerals, mm-hmm. um, and like I will never forget what that experience was like. And I think it's important that we don't forget the things that people lost, you know, the people that we lost. Yeah. I want to talk about this book in relationship to your first book, because in your first book, All You Can Ever Know, which we've done on the podcast before, we did it for book club and I talked to you about it. So folks should definitely go back and listen to those episodes. But that book is about your experience uh, or a little bit about your childhood, but mostly about your adopt, about your birth parents and trying to find out where you came from and or who you came from, I guess, more specifically. And in that book, that being your first book, you come onto the scene very much Nicole Chung, an adoptee, right? A transracial adoptee. That's like what the world learns about you in the beginning. And and then in reading this book, you kind of have a few sections where you talk about when you went to college, nobody had to know you were adopted and, and how that was really freeing for you. And it allowed you to like live in your own self in a way that you'd never been able to. And I'm wondering, I guess, about about that, because I mm-hmm. think of you so much as an adoptee, because that's where I met you. And now reading this book, I'm like, oh, it's interesting that you started where you started. And if you'd ever thought about not starting there. Yeah. So, I mean, I think about something that Alexander Chi said once when I interviewed him, and this was like many years ago. Um, and he was talking about his first novel, uh, Edinburgh, and how at the time he wrote it, it was one of the, the first, I don't know if he said the only, like my memory is failing me, mm-hmm. but it was one of uh, very, very few anyway, or possibly the only like treatments in fiction of a uh, Korean American gay protagonist. And he said something along the lines of it felt like he had to like write his 
like write himself in, like write his way in. Like that was almost like a declaration of selfhood in a way. Not that that book was entirely, of course, autobiographical right. or anything, but like it was, it was fiction. Um, and my book was memoir, but I felt similarly, yeah. I suppose at the time I wrote all you can ever know. Um, I mean, I don't talk about this often, but I'd had interest in book projects before. And like someone asked me once if I wanted to write a book that was had a, a, also memoir, but very different focus. And I did not want to. Um, first of all, I felt like I had said everything I wanted to say about that topic. And it was very, very little. Like I knew that was not a book I had in me. And and second, like I because I grew up not seeing my experience anywhere, like as a transracial Korean adoptee, I I think a part of me did feel like I've got to have this one first. Like this is the first book. Mm. And if there's space for just this much, you know, maybe that will open the door for more. To be honest, I'm not sure I feel that way now. I don't know if I'd have chosen to write the books in this order or if I'd have chosen a different book altogether as my first now, partly because it's been so hard to get away from that adoptee label. Not that I'm ever trying to separate it from my identity. I am an adoptee. It's part of everything I am. Like it's part of every area of my life. But you know, as you can see with The Living Remedy, like it is a much bigger, broader book. Mm-hmm. In some ways, it's a lot more ambitious. And it's also um, like my identity is always there because it's baked into everything I do, right. l- like my politics, like everything. But like these topics like grief and class and American inequality and healthcare and our failing systems and leave taking and the distance between you and home and the distance between what you want to do for your loved ones and what's possible. These are like big universal themes that are in like no way dependent on like my Korean adoptee identity at all. In a way, A Living Remedy scared me because, well, it scared me for so many reasons. But one was like, I had this real question of, this is how people know me. This is like you said, this is how you met me. Like you're this Korean adoptee writer. Like, will I get to be something more as a writer? Can people see me as something else? Will they follow me into new areas? Like, will publishing let me? Mm. Will, like, will critics respond? Is there space for that? Because publishing loves the categorization. (laughs) Like, and people love something that they can quickly and easily define or box in. And I've never seen writing about adoption as all I am or all I want to do. You know, like, my journalism is, like, it's it's more wide ranging. I have like a lot of different interests, but like I know that writing that book, which I'm super grateful for for having the chance to have written, like I know in some ways where that put me in this landscape and how hard it was to even get that toehold because that book was a very hard sell. Um, so yeah, I've been a little anxious and maybe I still am at like how remedy will be received, um, how it'll be read because like it's not a book like somebody can read and be like, oh, now I understand this marginalized experience, right? Mm. At least I don't think of it that way. And I'm writing about topics that we think of as, quote, universal when white writers write about them, yes, but I'm obviously not white. Right. So I've been I've been thinking a lot about that and just hoping the work stands up and stands for itself. But it, it was a little bit terrifying, like moving into that, that space. Um, that said, All You Can Never Know was obviously such a huge thing for my, my career. And I wouldn't be here with a chance to have another book or other books um, right. if not for that. So, of course, I am is just so thankful to have had that opportunity. And that story still means a lot to me.
Yeah. I mean, it's a fantastic book, though. If you're asking, I think I told you this. I like The Living Remedy more. I just think it I just feel like I can tell that you've changed as a writer. And I it's have. like so exciting. Um, I can't tell people who, but the episode after this is another writer who wrote a book in 2018 who we had on the show, who's back with their next book in 2023. And the two of you represents so much to me personally in my experience with the stacks, but also seeing you both do bigger and more ambitious projects is just as a reader and a person so freaking exciting. Like this book, aside from like who you are and my having admiration for you, I was just like, wow, wow, wow. This artist is like going for it. And I just, it's like gives me chills because that's what you want as like a consumer of, of the things. And I guess my next question is tied to that, which is you went from having a job to becoming a full-time writer. And what does that mean for you creatively? What can you now do in your work that maybe you couldn't do before or have you accessed that you hadn't accessed before? Well, that's a great question. I mean, first, I just want to thank you for what you said, because that means everything to me. Like, I loved that part of your review on your Instagram post about the book, because I felt myself stretching and growing. And I really this book tested me mm. a lot. Uh, there were many times I did not know if I was up to it. And mm. so hearing that just means a lot, because I, t I frankly think it's a better book. I also think I've grown as a writer. Mm. And I mean, I just love that you think so, too. That actually yeah. that means a great deal. Um, No, like I so uh, for those, most of your listeners won't know this, but I spent many, many years as an editor, full-time editor for different sites. Um, most recently I had been the digital editorial director of Catapult, uh, which is an indie book publisher. And for many years also had, um, you know, from the beginning, it's, it's founding also had, um, a digital magazine. And so, um, I was there and kind of worked my way up and hired and trained other editors and had a great team and I loved that job. Like I loved working with fellow writers to help them tell stories that mattered to them. Um, I love being an editor. It is in some ways, I still think of it as such a huge part of who I am, mm. but it was like, it was like the year after my mom died and I was really struggling to get back into this book, but I knew that I wanted to, and I knew that I had to, and I wasn't really looking to leave my job. Um, but it was slowly dawning on me. I mean, I had I'd been in denial about it for a while, but it was dawning on me, like, maybe you wrote one book with this full-time editorial job, um, but you're not going to write this book mm. with a full-time editorial job. And part of that was the job had changed. I, I was, I'd been promoted and I was managing a team during a pandemic and it was just, the job was more challenging, but, and, but part of it was just the book. The book was frankly harder. Hmm. It was more ambitious as we've talked about it. It just demanded more of me. Like everything I am really is in this book and I could not do it in the margins of my life. I couldn't write it in the, just, just the evenings or just the weekends. I knew I needed great, big, uninterrupted blocks of time. And then I had an opportunity from the Atlantic to come on board as a contributing writer. And it was a flexible arrangement that for a year gave me stable income mm. enough so that I could quit my full-time like editorial job. So I did it. Uh, I jumped and the Atlantic did keep me pretty busy, but I found more time than I'd had in years to write. Like there were days where it was just me in this book mm. and some of those days I, I wrote 10 hours. Some of those days I wrote one hour, but you know, like I had a lot of time uh, for the first time. Granted, I want to say with a caveat, like my kids were home doing zoom school every day, like six hours. 
and I was supporting my younger daughter for like half the school day. Uh, so that there was that that yeah. little matter, and you know I was still grieving, and I was still I was still actively writing and freelancing. So it was definitely like not it was by no means like all day every day was free right. for writing, but it was more than I'd ever had. Like mm-hmm. for the first time, I could wake up, and if I wanted to start writing at ten a.m., maybe I could. And that meant I could move in and out of the the world of the book much more freely. It was less work to get myself back into it. It meant that even the breaks I took, like to go for walks or like to eat meals or to talk with friends, like those wound up feeling like productive and like thoughtful times. I was always like turning something over in my head. I just lived with the book in a different way, Mm. Um, a way that I just couldn't with All You Can Ever Know, because I really did write that book like in the tiny margins of my life. And it was actually like really wonderful. Um, I think I learned a lot of patience and a lot of grace for myself, but I recognize that was a privilege I had because I'd taken this step, um, because I had enough stability as a writer to be able to write full time for that year. Um, and it just made all the difference. Like I felt a great sense of freedom working on this book that I had never felt when writing before. And that part was really exciting. And I think that's where. That's why I was able to kind of like, honestly, to put it bluntly, like improve Mm. in terms of craft. I just, I mean, I I really got to invest that time and that patience um, for that year. And it was like really exciting actually to see like the ways I was stretching and growing. I I entered this kind of meditative state while I was writing many days and that hasn't happened to me before. Um, So yeah, I don't know. It was just, it was a very hard book to write, obviously, but like emotionally really difficult. But it was also like sometimes a very freeing, almost like joyful experience because I really felt, oh, I'm like becoming a different kind of writer. This is this is exciting. That is so cool. OK, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last Three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. 
Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. All right, we're back. And we do this at the beginning of every month. It's called Ask the Stacks. I didn't prep you on this. Someone has written in and they want a book recommendation from us. So I'm going to read to you what they said and then we'll give them a book recommendation. Okay. This comes from Danielle. And Danielle says, hi there. First time writer, long time listener. <laughs> I am looking for a book recommendation for my dad. He has never been a big reader in the past, but he recently had knee replacement surgery and found that reading really helped pass the time while he recovered. He's having his other knee replaced in April, and I'm looking for some suggestions for him. Uh, he has read and liked Bad Blood by John Carey Rue, The Search for God and Guinness by Stephen Mansfield, The Pacific by Hugh Ambrose, and then Danielle says parenthetically, nonfiction is a trend and he likes World War II-centric books. And then they say, already have some Krakauer headed his way, but open to other options. Thank you. Um, so it sounds like we're looking for some nonfiction for dad, maybe World War II, maybe not. I can go first, or if you already have an idea, you can go first. Up to you. Uh, you should go first. <laughs> okay, I'll go first. So, Danielle, here's what I'll say. Looking at the books you said, it sounds like your dad loves to read white dudes, which, you know, I get it in nonfiction of World War II, but I'm going to try to mix it up a little bit. Uh, my first suggestion should come as zero surprise to anybody who listens to the show, Invisible Child by Andrea Elliott. It won the Pulitzer in 2022. It's about uh, Dasani, a young black child in New York City whose parents are in and out of homelessness and her and her kids and and Andrea Elliott takes like a really wide lens on Dasani's life and New York City and child welfare and it's just phenomenal. My second book is about World War II. It's called Half American by Matthew F. Delmont and it's all about it's sort of been described as like the definitive history of black Americans in World War II. So it's about the soldiers who went there and also when they came back, what happened to them. And then my last one is super narrative nonfiction, really like fast paced read, almost thrillery. Uh, it's The Devil's Highway by Luis Alberto Urea, which is his story of a group of migrants who come to uh, America through Mexico. And it's a really harrowing story and it's an incredible book and just incredible writing. So those are my three non-white guy, non-fiction recommendations. Nicole, you only have to give one. Don't worry. <laughs> okay. I've been sitting here like I'm, I, I have to confess, I don't read a lot of uh, World War II nonfiction. So I was like racking my brain to think of something and I was coming up empty, which okay. shocked nobody. <laughs> um, I mean, okay. So I will recommend like one work of nonfiction by a white dude. And I just kind of recommend it to everybody, but like E.B. White's collected essays is a favorite oh. of mine, um, which I know might sound a bit surprising, but like, cause 
Well, surprising for a couple of reasons. One, I think when most people think of E.B. White, they think of Charlotte's Charlotte Web. Web. They yeah. think of Stuart Little. They think of children's books. I really love his essays. Of course, he was a longtime New Yorker writer. Um, but his collected essays, and particularly the ones from his like saltwater farm in Maine, are just some of my favorite deep comfort reads. I like mm. the clarity and ease and humanity of his sentences very much. Um, so there's one. And then I was trying to think of like favorite nonfiction of mine that's also like a little bit I don't know, reported or researched. This might be kind of out there, but um, it's not World War II, but it's 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 about, you know, it's, it's after. But uh, it's by Arisa Oh. It's called To Save the Children of Korea. It's like a history, a cultural history of Korean adoption oh, that, wow. that's set against the backdrop of the Korean War. Okay. Um, and it's a book about, I mean, the growth of that program, which is really like the, uh, I call it like the great grandfather of all international adoption programs, but there wouldn't be one without Korea and its six, quote unquote success. Um, it's an interesting read, though, if you're interested in like American imperialism um, and how we get to where we are. And, um, you know, in the aftermath of war, what both those countries, what both Korea and the U.S. did, I guess, to try to address what they saw as a shared problem, namely like the large number of Korean war orphans. So, um, it's a little, might be a little bit out there, but I think it's a great reader. It says a wonderful historian. Um, it's really well written and I recommend it widely to anybody who's interested in Korea, the Korean war or Korean adoption. Oh my gosh. I'm like salivating over that book. I'm going to okay. go get it like immediately after we get off. It's this. really good. It sounds like totally up my alley. Um, okay. Danielle, let us know what your dad thinks of the books. Good luck to him. Quick recovery. And if anyone else wants book recommend recommendations for themselves, email askthestacks at thestackspodcast.com. Okay, we're going to move on to your taste in books. But before we do, I just have to mm -hmm. tell you that I... Um, have you read this book, We Were Once a Family by Roxana Asgarian? It's on my list, but I haven't read it yet. It's so fucking good, Nicole. I've become like really interested in child welfare recently in America. And so that book that you just suggested reminded me of that, but it's so good. Okay. Two books you love, one book you hate. Oh gosh. Um, okay. So I want to start off by saying, I'm not trying to get out of this, but I hate almost no books because if I don't feel a book, I don't keep reading it. So I don't sit with a book like long enough to really hate it. Um, the best I came up with was like, I really struggled to get through The Old Man in the Sea when we read it when I was in school. And then I, I don't like hate this book exactly, but people might find it interesting that while I love Jane Austen and I have read most of her books many times, I've always struggled to care about one of her most popular, Sense and Sensibility. Mm. I don't know why. Like it just, I know many, many people love it. I love a lot of her books. Um, I've, I've just really had a hard time getting into it. Uh, so it's not quite a hate, but that's there close you go. enough. And you got it out of the way I mean, fast. I appreciate that. I thought you were going to give me that. No. I don't finish any books I hate. And so I can't answer, but you gave me good oh, answers. No. So I, I accept mean, it's, it. Thank you. I mean, I really <laughs> truly don't like finish. I feel life is too short and I always have 10 books going at once. So yeah. if I don't really actually like it very much, I'm probably not going to finish it. In which case I feel I can't say I hate it because I didn't really. Yeah, I get that. Finish it. Um, Books I love, like, so, so many, but, I mean, two all-time faves, um, Pachinko by Min Jin Lee uh, and The Buddha in the Attic by Julie Otsuka. Mm. Um, so both mean a lot to me, obviously, fellow Asian-American writers who I look up to. Um, so those are my two, two of my many loves. I love that. Okay, what about the last great book you read? Oh, man, this is hard. So, I mean, I just, um, oh, gosh, 
Sorry. Of course, like in the minute I'm asked about book, books, like everything goes blank. Blank, I know. <laughs> yeah. No. So I read A Line in the World by Dorta Norris. Um, mm-hmm. It's a year on the North Sea coast. It's really, really beautiful. Just the language. It's very evocative. It's a book that takes you on a journey, which I love. I read it really slowly, like a chapter at a time, like mm-hmm. as a comfort read. Um, so I really loved A Line in the World. You've mentioned this term comfort read a few times. What do you oh, look yeah. for in a comfort read? How do you define oh, it? That's a great question. I have no idea. Like other examples of comfort reads, um, Madeline Miller's books and Station Eleven, which I know okay. sounds like hmm. a very weird comfort read. Yes. But like, I know it's a comfort read if I reach for it on my like e-reader on a plane. Because oh. like when I, or like any any travel read, if I find myself rereading a book on while I'm traveling, like I specifically am looking for books I can sink into like the rhythms and feel comforted by. Maybe at this point, it's just books I have reread so okay. many times that I can fall back in immediately. Um, that's a great question, though. I don't know. Like, it, there is. It's just that familiarity. It must just be a book I love and have reread many times. I love that. I've never, I, I don't have comfort reads, I don't think. Mm. What? Okay, you mentioned you can, you read like 10 books at a time. I what do. are you currently reading and how do you keep 10 books at a time straight? Um, I don't keep them straight. <laughs> it's really terrible. But I mean, I will say mostly they're, yeah, they're always so different. It's not like I'm getting characters mixed up either. Right. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm in the middle. I started Yellow Face by oh, Fong. It's literally right behind me on this bed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not very far in yet, you know, but I expected it would hit like kind of close to home. And yeah. indeed, um, I'm good. I'm starting Family Lore, Elizabeth okay. Acevedo's new book. Also um, in the stack behind me. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, Mobility by Lydia Kissling. I guess there's a lot of books like coming out this year that are um, not out yet. Sorry to annoy your listeners that way. Um, I started White Cat, Black Dog by Kelly Link. Um, I'm excited to start Ordinary Notes by Christina Sharp. Like it's supposed to show up any day. I pre-ordered. Okay. So like I keep checking the mailbox. <laughs> um, and as for how I keep them all straight, I mean... Uh, like I said, I, I guess I just don't worry about it very much, but I always have like stacks like in multiple rooms. And if I'm stuck or bored at work or like I just need a break, you know, I'll reach for one. So, yeah, yeah. I like working on many books at once. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely more of a one book pony. I like to do one book at a time. I just can't. I sometimes can do like one on audio, one in print, but mm-hmm. it's hard for me to maneuver multiple stories at once. It's- it's probably for the best that you do that because I am so slow as a result of being in the middle of too many books at once. Like, I feel like people will not believe me when I tell them I'm reading your book. I swear. I'm still reading your book. I think it's really good. I swear. Um, but it's just, I don't know. I get, I just get, you know what it's like. You yeah. get galleys all the time. You're yeah. like, this looks so good. I can't wait. I and know. then like, before you know it, you've started another book. Yeah, I definitely have that feeling of like, oh, my God, I want to start that right now. But I'm like, if I start right? it, then I won't finish the other thing. And like, exactly. you also know, reading for work is like, there's a commitment when you're reading mm-hmm. for work. So for me, yes. I'm just like, let me just read it. And I like write out a calendar and I have like finished by date so that I can prep or whatever. But when I get to the moment where I'm like caught up with work for a little bit and then I'm like, I can pick anything, I just freeze. It takes like a whole yeah. day to decide like what and where am I going next? Um, um, this is also why I love to read poetry because you mm. can have poetry just kind of ongoing in the background. Yeah. And like you can pick it up and read one poem and feel like great. Yeah. Um, I don't know how poets do it, but I'm always I'm always reading like books of poetry as well. Do you have favorite um, poets? Oh, I mean, 
I love um, Ada Limon and Ocean Vong and Lucille Clifton. I love Clint Smith. Mm. Um, I'm reading Promises of Gold right now by Jose oh, Oliveira. Are you and, loving it? Mm-hmm. But love. that's another one. I've been like reading it. Like, yeah. and I really have been, but it, like slowly because yeah. I'll pick a few poems at a time and then I'll think about them. And it's not, I guess I don't feel pressed to read in a hurry. Mm-hmm. You know, that's like one thing about me. So yeah, um, I think poetry is like very good for that. I found it was perfect for the pandemic attention span in particular. There were like months there when like, I feel like I read more poetry than anything else mm. because it was so compact and exactly what I needed, you know, yeah. in that moment. Um, do you know R.O. Kwan? Yeah, yeah. She said the exact same thing about poetry during the pandemic. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, okay, you got all the galleys. You're a big reader. How do you decide what to read next? Are you looking at reviews? Are you talking to friends? Are you just mm-hmm. browsing a bookstore or whatever comes to the door? How do you decide what to actually start? Oh, I love a bookstore browse. Like that's my favorite being mm-hmm. on vacation, totally relaxed, not looking for anything. I almost never go into a bookstore with a plan mm. or an agenda. I love to ask the booksellers what they're loving. Yes. And like, so recommendations are huge for me. They say social media doesn't sell books, but I get so many good recommendations from like Bookstagram and even mm-hmm. even following writers on Twitter. I mm-hmm. I take a ton of recommendations from social media. And then um, I, I use reviews like very sparingly. So if I read a great one and by great, I don't just mean a rave. I mean like a really thoughtful review. Mm-hmm. Sometimes even a critical one will make me want to pick up the book. Um, but that's much rarer than just a recommendation from a trusted source. Yeah. So I would say I lean a lot on like friends and like, I mean, I follow a lot of bookstagrammers and I definitely read those reviews. Um, it's, it's like really helpful for me, but it's also terrible for me because <laughs> despite getting a lot of books for free, which I'm very, I know I'm very lucky. I mean, I also spend just like a lot of money on books. Yeah. Um, it's, it's definitely not like what my budget needs, but yeah, same anyway. hard, same. Yeah. Um, how do you organize your books? Do you organize your books? I do organize them. I mean, I, I tell people I organize them by vibe. Like, okay. <laughs> but I mean, first we go my room. So in my, um, like, I have this tall, like, thin bookcase in the, like, living room. And that's where I keep a lot of the current reads and books I very, very much want to read soon. Okay. But of course, there's, like, 50 books in there. So, like, who right. knows how soon I'll get to them. Um, I have, like, another tall shelf that's almost all galleys that I still like to read. But, like, maybe they're back burner in my bedroom where they just stare at me and making me feel guilty. Um, I've got like two active to be read stacks in my office. And like, you'll see behind me, I have a lot of like faves. One whole shelf is poetry um, books by like close dear friends. Like Mm -hmm. those are in my office. Um, And then everything else is in the den just on like several, several bookshelves. Um, I don't really have a system within each, like with uh, on each shelf that would make any sense to anybody else. But I do know where everything is. Yeah. Like if you ask me, where's your copy of whatever, like I can go find it for you despite not having a great system. So something must be working, but um, yeah, it's just like it's just organized like a lot of chaos. Books. Yeah. And books I'm literally in the middle of those like sit in a stack on the piano um, okay. and I just kind of like go through them. Yeah. I love that. I I have a shelf. I have a bookshelf that is all books that I've read and loved. And that one is the bookshelf in my bedroom because I okay. like to be near them. You know, yes. your, like your book is there. Heavy is there. Jasmine Thank Ward you. is there. 
Um, who else? Some of my really serious, dark, like Charles Manson books are there. Oh, <laughs> like, wow. Okay. My, just like, you know, my comfort reads. <laughs> <laughs> See, I guess a, com- a comfort read can truly be anything. It could be know? anything. Uh, that's what I say about like a beach read or like a summer read. Mm-hmm. I'm like, it's whatever exactly. you're reading at the su- in the summer. What do you mean? Right. It's just whatever you pick during the summertime. What are books that you love to recommend to other people? Um, I do actually love to recommend poetry to people. It brings me a lot of joy. Not because I think anybody needs me to tell them about Lucille Clifton. Like who doesn't know Lucille right. Clifton? But I have found a lot of people like don't buy it. And I'm like, no, you have to buy it. You have to support the poets and you have to keep the poets near you. And like, also, what do you read when you just can't with the world? Mm. Um, so I do like to recommend a lot of poets. And I talked about some of them before. Um, I mean, there's books I've it just kind of depends. I actually like to ask what people are into and then yeah. like I can make a better recommendation. But I mean, recent books or recent ish books that I've bought for people, I guess that's how I can tell I really connected with a book when I want everyone to read it. Like I gifted Julia Otsuka's The Swimmers to many people last year. Um, my, book. I mean, my teenager and I read it together. Mm. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, I mean, Pachinko. Pachinko is one of those is one of those books I have bought for for many people like in my family. Um, and I don't know, um, just looking at my shelf, I'm kind of cheating here, but okay. yeah. Oh, um, like Brian Washington's books and, mm. um, I'm always like, let's see, I love Ted Chang, um, okay. like his stories. So yeah, those are like books that I bought for other people, which is sort of like recommending them. I mean, yeah. I'm li- it's like, the, it's like the highest form of recommendation. It's a literal recommendation. I want like, you to read I'm it so literally much. giving this I'm to you. I'm handing it to you. Yes. Yes, definitely. <laughs> yeah, I think that's um, the highest form of recommendation for sure. Yeah. And I really love Clint Smith's new collection of poetry <sighs> above ground. I mean, I know I'm not alone in that. Everybody does, but I thought it was so beautiful and I can tell it's when I'm going to be like buying for folks. So I'm excited. About I think that's going to that. be my, like my baby shower gift. To the parent. That's such a good idea. Yeah. Because I feel like it's like you give them like a blankie or whatever, which is fine. But you don't really give them anything for the parent usually. Sometimes I give give like a nipple thing to the moms that I really really liked. But mostly it's like a good nipple cream is is crucial. Yes. Yes. Oh, that's such a good idea. I love that. Do you audiobook? No. No, I don't. I don't. I don't know why. I've just never really been able to like get into a story that way like I appreciate audiobooks as art right like it's I I think many of them are beautifully like read and performed um I really liked Brian Washington's memorial I happened to listen to that audiobook because my husband was listening to it Mm. but um I don't actually it's not the way I consume books myself however because so many people in my family like love audiobooks I am still a very devoted like Libro FM customer. Mm. So like maybe someday I'll like get into them walking the dog or something, but I haven't yet. Um, Do you read your audiobooks? I, I don't. I've had um, actors narrate both times. I think Jennifer Kim, who reads A Living Remedy, I haven't gotten to listen to the whole thing yet, but um, I thought she did like a really lovely job. Okay, I have to check out at least a preview. The thing about when you read books in advance is that you don't get the audiobook. So that's true. That's how people who listen to this show, you can know if I read the book before it published, because if I said that I listened to the audio, that means I I waited. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Um, that's a good tell. (laughs) Yeah, it's a little little, little inside baseball. What's your favorite bookstore? This is so hard. I feel like... Or favorites. You can say a few. (laughs) I have legit always loved a bookstore. I love the bookstores you stumble into on vacation when Mm -hmm. you're not really looking like in the beach towns. Um, I have to shout out one of my locals, Loyalty Books. Yes, Um, we love loyalty here. 
we do love loyalty. They're, they're in my acknowledgements. They set up a signed pre-order campaign for me in record time over the summer when no one should have had to do anything. Um, <laughs> so I'm very, very grateful and I love them. And Hannah reminded me actually um, recently that I was like their first author event like wow. when they opened loyalty, which I don't think I knew. I think I was their first author event and like their second ever event event. Wow. So I'm like, I am extremely honored by that. Um, I really love Powell's, you know, uh, as an Oregonian yes. and I've been shopping there on, I mean, online since I was a teen, wow. um, just as an, as an aside, it's, it's like, they sell also used and rare and like mm-hmm. out of print books. And I was obsessed with, okay, you know, the book, the Scarlet Pimpernel. Yeah. Um, Okay, so she also wrote like all of these obscure sequels with the same characters that nobody really has heard of, but I loved them. I was obsessed with the Scarlet Pimpernel and all its sequels. And Powell's was like the only place I could find all of these books. Wow. So I started shopping there as a teen and like just kept going. Um, and then I guess I will shout out um, so Elliott Bay Books and the Third Place Books, all three locations in Seattle, they were the first bookstores I visited as a brand new published author in 2018 because I was in Seattle for the PNBA conference. Okay. So they were the first stores I went to as an author to like sign stock. And I was like, I mean, <laughs> it was just kind of like thrilling. Um, and I still really love those stores and they've been incredibly supportive of me over the years. So those are a few of the many. Um, but yeah, love an indie bookstore. I love that. Okay, this is sort of our speed round. What's the last oh, book that made you laugh? Um, I'm reading it right now. Uh, Congratulations, The Best is Over by R. Eric Thomas, who is just one of my favorite writers. I love him. Um, It's funny. It's funny. And then it just suddenly hits you with something very heartfelt and beautiful. Um, That's Eric. So I... But yes, he is he is laugh out loud funny. Oh my god. I ha- so that came for me and I have not been able to get to it yet. And You're it's killing it. me. You will love it. You I will. I have no doubt. Um okay, last book that made you cry. Um, probably The Swimmers, actually. Every and I've reread it now a couple of times and the very ending. I cannot read the last page without like just mm. so yeah. I fucking love that book. Last book that made you angry. Oh gosh. It's a strange answer, maybe, but I was just rereading Imani Perry's Breathe. Mm. It's a letter to her sons. You're probably We've really done familiar it on book with it. Club. Okay, it's gorgeous. <laughs> I she's one of my she's just like God, Imani Perry. Like yeah. she's incredible. And it's a beautiful, like meditative, like soulful book. I think parts of it do make make made me angry. I and I was more conscious of that this time than the first time I read it. Um I think the first time I was very caught up in just this is like a mother's message to her sons trying mm-hmm. to like affirm their goodness mm. and like their beauty in this world that often doesn't want to see it. And this last time I read it, I was thinking about how this book is a few years old and so much has not changed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was conscious of feeling much more angry than I was the first time I read it, even though that wasn't, I wouldn't say it was the prevailing emotion I felt. Yeah. Um, I find Amani to be like a very, like, I mean, her voice is very soothing. Yeah. Like she writes about very complicated, often heavy things, but she's a soothing writer for me. But yeah, I was conscious of feeling like this deep anger, you know, uh, like while I was reading that I didn't feel the first time. Yeah. So kind of a so strange good. answer. It is so good. That's on yes. my my bedroom bookshelf with my faves. It's right. It's like right behind me here. Yeah. yeah it's, it's, it's very, very that's good. A, that's one you got to keep close. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the last book where you felt like you learned a lot? Hmm. I'm sorry to go with Imani Perry again, but South to America, uh, her most recent, 
just a, you know, won a little thing called the National Book Award, but um, it was incredible. And I got to be in conversation with her for it, which meant I was really feeling the pressure. And I read it like twice beforehand, like, can't sound dumb in front of Imani Perry. Um, and I did. I learned like so much. It was just like an incredible read. Um, yeah. That and The Swimmers were probably my two favorite books of last year. So for you to mention both of them, no, I know that I can trust your taste. I mean, great uh, minds here. Yeah, that's so. exactly right. We can be friends forever. Um, <laughs> we'll be recommending to each other. Are there any books that you feel proud to have read? Um, That's an interesting question. Not really. Like, I don't think, I don't know. As mentioned, I only really finish books I like these days. Mm-hmm. And like, I have read like a fair number of books in the Western, like, quote unquote, classics canon, just from being educated here. Um, Mm -hmm. No, nothing like leaps to my mind in terms of like feeling proud I finished it. Are there any books you feel embarrassed that you've read? I don't believe in being embarrassed about books, honestly. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, no, I mean, I I mean, I have been like rereading some Agatha Christie books recently. And this is not something I particularly noticed as a kid when I read my way through her whole library. But Obviously, there's a lot of period typical racism that just like mm. for me sneaks up and like shocks me. Mm-hmm. And then we're right back to the story and the the whodunit of it all. Um, so like I'm not embarrassed to have enjoyed or read those books, but like I think as it happens so often when you revisit books you read when you were younger and a lot went over your head. Yeah. Like it's just like it's you know, you just learn like, okay, you know, if I'm going to read this, I'm I'm getting all this other stuff along with it. And yeah. there's yeah, it's just I don't know. I I hesitate to call it like a problematic fave, but like. That was literally going to be my next question. So we'll skip. <laughs> okay. Okay. That's fair. Um, are there any books or is there a book that you wish more people knew about? Um, It's hard because I don't follow sales that much. So like mm-hmm. I don't have like I will have read a book and loved it and assumed it did very well. Mm-hmm. And like then I'm told <laughs> later that it didn't. And I'm right. like, oh, everybody should be reading this book. Um, So. You know, I, I always think that my favorite books should be more widely read, even if they were widely read. Right, I feel right. like more people should. Um, I do really love um, Taylor Harris. She's a dear friend of mine, but also I love her book, This Boy We Made. It's a beautiful memoir. And like, anyway, we're going to talk about it. I'm excited to talk about it. And then like another recent book I thought was just great that more people should read um, by Taja Eisen, some of my best friends. It's an essay collection. Mm. Um, I really, really thought it was just so smart and well done. Everything Taja writes is great. And she's a wonderful editor as well. Um, So that's another recommendation. I'm so excited to talk about this boy we made because I had a lot of thoughts and feelings as I read it. And I kept being like, oh, my gosh, I cannot wait to talk to Nicole about this. Oh, good. Because <laughs> I feel like you're like the perfect person. I'm going to make sure I reread it before okay. before we talk about it. But like just like full disclosure, I was Taylor's editor at Catapult when she was writing columns that became the book. So, no, I did not edit the book itself. Right. Um, I did read it early, but um, a lot of like what's in it kind of took shape when we were writing that column, working on that column together. So I am really excited to talk about it. And you're thanked profusely in the acknowledgments. I think you're the second person thanked. Oh my gosh, that's incredible. I had forgotten that, which is terrible of me, but I know. Well, I feel like you're one of those people um, that, uh, that other writers often attribute I think, you know, because you were an editor, but I feel like you pop up a lot in acknowledgments and on Twitter, I see people thanking you. And I always, you know, I think that's like such a special 
it's something that I notice as a reader. I'm like, oh, who are the people that come up a lot? And it's very meaningful, I'm sure, to you too, to know that like you've had such an impact on so many people. But it's really cool to see that. I mean, so many people have been really kind and generous and supportive of me. And I say sometimes like there's no paying that back. Like the people who help you often Sometimes they will need your help, but most often they don't. Yeah. They're in a position to help you because they can. Like you can't necessarily always pay them back, but you pay it forward. And mm-hmm. um, of course, I was just doing my job when I was editing right. folks. But also, yeah, I mean, I like to. Um, it's a pleasure to see writers I love succeed um, and get to tell their stories. So that does mean a lot. Is there anything on your bu- bookish bucket list? Um. I would like to actually read more plays Ooh. and like, I don't even just mean the classics, although yes, I'd like to read like the classics, but I, I'm talking like modern playwrights, especially mm-hmm. playwrights of color. Mm-hmm. Plays can be harder to find. Um, I remember I was looking for a play a few years ago because my friend was in, I think mm-hmm. it's world premiere. It was by an Asian American playwright. And I had like really searched to find like a copy of it, but I did. And I read it. And even though I couldn't see it performed, I really loved reading it. So I was like, this is cool. I should like read more plays. So, I mean, that's kind of a reading goal for me. For sure. If you were a high school teacher, what's a book you would assign to your students? Oh, gosh. Um, I would probably, again, like make them read a whole lot of poetry. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Like collected poems of Lucille Clifton. June Jordan, Langston Hughes. I mean, I think those those poems. I re- I was assigned almost exclusively dead white male writers yes. in high school. So, and don't get me wrong, I love me some Hamlet, but like, yeah. um, yeah, I know there's so much more out there that I wasn't exposed to till much later. So, and I, I get the sense it's changing, but I would, you know, if I were a teacher, that's what I would be assigning. Yeah. I hated Hamlet. I hate Hamlet. It's one of my you least hate face. Hamlet? I do. Oh and gosh. I've read all of them. I've read all 37 of them. I know you have. And Hamlet falls mid-low for me. Okay. I mean, there's ones that I hate way more that are like objectively bad, but I never quite got the Hamlet of it all. But that's just, that's I think, fair. a taste thing. Um, I generally don't like male coming-of-age stories, I think. Like, I, I don't know. Just not enough. There was not enough there for me there, but I understand it's a masterpiece, according to some. Oh, no, that's fair. I just like the soliloquies, man. Like, Yeah, there there's some them, really so. great speeches. And there's a few really great scenes. But, okay, you've written two memoirs. Who would you want to write the book of your life? See, I've written the book of my life. This I know. is like the hardest question. <laughs> um, well, okay, if let's say it's the authorized biography or, okay. or memoir. So I'd be looking for someone who I know well, who's a friend who I can trust, honestly. Um, and someone whose writing voice I know really well. I think the problem is that a lot of people I can think of like primarily write fiction. But mm-hmm. like, let's say there are no rules. Okay, no rules, they, no rules. Let's say they wanted to write nonfiction. I mean, I don't know. Um, I'd be tempted to ask someone I knew and trusted like, um, you mentioned Ariel Kwan earlier. She, I mean, I love her writing. She's a beautiful writer. She's also like a very dear friend. So, I mean, that's someone. Or like, maybe I would try to find like a, a like an an unknown emerging mm. like Korean American adoptee writer. Okay. Um, 
someone like that would be like very exciting for me. But it's it's such a strange question. Like it's weird to think about as a memoirist. Right. And, like, I mean, you've sort of done it already. So right. But up it's, to it's this a point. fun question. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's it's a tough one. You know, like I mean, who wouldn't want like Min Jin Lee writing their life story? Sure. I don't think my I don't think my life is worthy of like Min Jin Lee treatment. But well, that's not for you to decide. Let Min decide if that's what she wants okay. to do. Yeah, I'll <laughs> ask her next time I see her. <laughs> Okay, last one. I stole it from the New York Times, but if you could require the current president of the United States to read one book, what would it be? Um, okay, this is a good and like really hard question. Uh, so at the LA Times Festival of Books, which you and I were both at, um, so I was on a panel with Ruha Benjamin, who wrote mm. Viral Justice, How mm. We Grow the World We Want. And every single thing she said, yes, I wanted to stand and applaud, but so did everybody in the room. Yeah. Um, and I was like, so maybe that book, that would be a great one. And this also reminds me that if anybody does have a connection to like the Obamas, I would love if they sent them my book. Um, yeah. okay. I think it's like right up their alley. What with the healthcare and all, but yeah, no, I think, I think Ruha's would be one I would for sure like recommend to, to any sitting president or former president. I love that. I love that. Ruha Benjamin is like such a genius, brilliant just oh is a wow it's a wow person for me yeah um yeah it was really incredible just sharing the space i was i felt really privileged to get to hear her speak that's so cool all right that's it for nicole today she will be back on may 31st when we discuss taylor harris's memoir this boy we made there will be spoilers so you're gonna want to make sure you read the book before may 31st so you can listen to us talk about it and you can get Nicole's book, A Living Remedy. Now it is out in the world. If you haven't read her first book, All We Can Ever Know, you should get that one too. Nicole, thank you so much for being here. Of course. Thank you, Tracy. It was a delight. Yay. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. All right, y'all, that does it for us this week. Thank you so much to Nicole for being my guest. And thank you to Michael Tackins and Abinga Moraka for helping to make this conversation possible. Don't forget our May Book Club pick is This Boy We Made, a memoir of motherhood, genetics, and facing the unknown by Taylor Harris. Nicole will be back on May 31st for this discussion. If you love the show and want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks and join the stacks pack. Make sure you're subscribed to The Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. Oh, and tell a friend about the show. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. This episode of The Stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite and our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. Tracy Thomas. 